Greetings! Regular listeners will recognize that this week's program sounds quite a bit different than usual. A partial power failure overnight knocked out all of our equipment necessary to run a service in our normal fashion. Since we had planned our annual Thanksgiving dinner to follow the service, and the lights were still working in Friendship Hall, we decided to move everything downstairs. The message you are about to hear was delivered by Pastor Chris while the Faith family was seated around tables appropriately decorated for Thanksgiving. Please bear with us through the unusual sounds in the background. Our time together was sweet, and we think you'll agree that our time in the Word is too good to miss. And so, without further introduction, here's Pastor Chris. In 2009, veteran Texas skydiving instructor Dave Hartsock was in the middle of a 13,000-foot-high tandem jump. That's when a first-time skydiver is strapped to the instructor so that they don't have to do anything. The instructor does everything. I mean, they're, they're in a harness, and they're free-falling with the skydiving expert, but he's doing it all. So they're just literally along for the ride taking it all in. That's what a tandem jump is. So he was in this 13,000 feet high tandem jump with Shirley Digert, a grandmother. How many grandmothers want to sign up for that, right? A grandmother and first time diver. So that's the scenario and they're falling and he discovers that neither of his two parachutes, the primary or the safety parachute would open. They wouldn't open at all to stop their free fall. And so as he's struggling to untangle the parachute lines, they're falling thousands and thousands of feet with just seconds left to go before impact. And it's in that moment that he decided to use his control strings on on his chute and on his setup to rotate his body so that he would cushion Shirley absorbing the brunt of the impact when the two hit the ground. Hartsock's quick thinking saved Shirley Digert's life, and she still had some injuries, but she fully recovered and is able to function normally. But Dave Hartsock paid a significant price. The fall paralyzed him from the neck down. When he was asked if he would have made the same heroic choice if he had known what was going to happen to him in that jump, absolutely was his answer. He went on to say, when people do a tandem, they don't know about body position. They're just looking for a a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Shirley didn't know how to do anything without hurting herself, so better me than her. As we continue in our series, One Another's, today, we're talking about the need that we all have to consider one another. And you could put in parentheses on that, consider one another higher, consider one another more. And certainly that story frames that thought. It gives us a very vivid, just unimaginable example of what it really means to consider one another to the lengths that sometimes we might have to go, which is self-sacrifice in considering one another. And that's exactly what we're called to. And it's with that in mind that I want to draw your attention to Philippians 2, 3. This verse is the main verse 
that communicates this command, this directive that we're all to, to do, to consider one another higher, more, better. And we'll see exactly what that means in this verse. Philippians 2.3. This is from the CSB. The Apostle Paul writing, Do nothing, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, notice the contrast there, not in conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. As we've looked at each one another that we've examined together in this series, this too is incredibly difficult, right? Incredibly challenging, incredibly counterintuitive. This does not come easy. It does not come naturally. This is not how we are humanly wired. This is not our default response at all. It's quite the opposite of what we're prone to. C.S. Lewis said, True humility, true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Often we think of humility in that first way. We think humility means that we have to debase ourselves. We have to look down on ourselves. We have to be self-deprecating all the time. Uh, It means weakness. No, not at all. Humility is simply thinking of yourself less than we normally do. It's thinking of yourself less than we think of other people. President Harry Truman said, It is amazing what you can accomplish if you do not care who gets the credit. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we saw that in action in our government today? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we saw that in our families more than we see them? In every aspect of life, wouldn't it be wonderful if we put that into practice over and over in consistency? And the reason that we don't see that more than we do and more than we should is because it's counter-cultural. That type of thinking, that philosophy, that it's amazing what you can accomplish if you don't care who gets the credit of thinking of yourself less, that's all very counter-cultural. That's not what we see as we look out at our society, at culture, at humanity in general. It's not what we see when we look deep in ourselves. And the reason, of course, is because it's not just counter-cultural, it's counter-human. In our humanity, in our fallen state, we follow in the pattern and the footsteps of our first parents who said, it is about me. It's all about me. I am going to think of myself first and foremost. That's what was behind the eating of the forbidden fruit. And that's what was behind the tempter who tempted them to do that. Because he said that first. The first sin was not Adam and Eve's. That was the first human sin. The first sin was Lucifer's, who did the exact opposite of what Philippians 2.3 instructs. He said, I will, I will, I will. I will ascend higher than Almighty God. I will make my throne high up on the mountains of God. I deserve to be worshipped. I, me. And then he 
tempted our first parents to follow suit. And sure enough, they did. So this thinking, the reason it's so hard, the reason it's so difficult to put others first, to consider others as more important, to esteem others and to lift others up above ourselves and to operate in a mode of humility, it's because it's completely counter to everything we are deep inside of ourselves. You, uh, you know about Burger King, probably some of you uh, frequent that establishment. Burger King, their motto is, have it your way, and it's been that way for a long time. Let me read to you their philosophy. This is actually from their organization. This was the explanation behind that motto. This is kind of their mission statement, if you will. I mean, this is Burger King. Something as simple as a fast food restaurant can speak volumes of the prevailing philosophy of humanity and of our culture. Here's the reason they have this motto. You have the right, you have the right to have what you want exactly when you want it. Because on the menu of life, you are today's special and tomorrow's and the day after that. And, well, you get the drift. Yes, that's right. We may be the king, but you, my friend, are the almighty ruler. So, of course, they're talking about, you know, hamburgers and fries and things like that, but doesn't that speak volumes? Doesn't that just go much deeper than a burger and a burger franchise's motto? I mean, that epitomizes our entire society. The entire philosophy on which all humanity operates. We say, that's absolutely right. Yes, I do have a right to have what I want, when I want it, how I want it. doesn't matter what might be at stake. I deserve it. I have a right to this. Yes, thank you very much. I am today's special and tomorrow's and the day after that. I mean, that's the message we tell ourselves every day. This uh, is something that Burger King has done for a long, long time, and they still have it. And I think this is a good visual aid for how we think as human beings. Naturally, our default is to put a crown on our own head and want everybody to acknowledge that there's a crown on our head, that we are the king or the queen And we want everybody to acknowledge that, and we want to be treated that way. We want to be treated like royalty, like superiority. And we go around life trying to collect as many crowns as we can. The problem is, all the crowns that we amass for ourselves are as flimsy and as fleeting as this cardboard crown is. The only kind of crown that matters is the one that's on King Jesus. And He's the one we need to be pursuing. He's the one we need to be honoring. And we need to actually follow His lead. What does He do with His royalty? What does He do with His superiority? What does He do with His preeminence? What does He do toward other people? He's the one that is the King over all of the universe. He's the one that is rightly deserving of all worship, all honor, all glory. Which is what makes it that much more astounding when we see what Scripture shows us and tells us that He did with 
his kingship, the way he acted, and the way he was toward us. Philippians 2, 1 through 8, gives us that amazing glimpse. Philippians 2, 1 through 8. We've already looked at verse 3. And you remember, most of you who were here, I'm sure that we did an entire series on the importance of keeping things in context, right? We said that context is key. You have to look at what came before the verse you're looking at in specific detail and what came after it. And we're going to do that. And this passage, as it relates to verse 3, is just a prime example of why it's so important to look at an overall context. This context surrounding verse 3 is so powerful, so beautiful. I don't want you to miss the emphasis that's placed here. Remember, King Jesus is worthy of all honor, all glory, all worship, all adoration. He has the right to demand anything He wants from anyone at any time. And yet, pay attention to what He did with that. Starting in verse 1, Philippians 2.1, the Apostle Paul writing says, If then, and if then, that's rhetorical. Paul is saying, obviously there is what we're going to see following in this list. So, if then, rhetorical statement, if then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in Spirit, intent on one purpose. And then here's our verse for today. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interest, and uh, other translations insert only, and that's a a very accurate addition there to that phrase. That's really what Paul was saying. He, He wasn't saying that it's wrong or evil to ever look to your own interests. He's saying don't look only, don't look primarily to your own interests. Everyone should look not only to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. And then he gives us Christ's matchless example. And that's what I was alluding to just a minute ago. This is his matchless example. The the ultimate contrast to everything that we are, humanly speaking. Everything we see in our society. To everything that even places like Burger King tell us. That you should have it your way whenever you want it. You have a right. You are the king of your own kingdom. And everybody should acknowledge that. Watch this incredible contrast to that. Remembering who this is that Paul is describing. Christ's matchless example. Verse 5. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, in other words, very God, who was in every way 100% full deity. Everything that the Father was and is, so is Jesus. Who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God, which He had, as something to be exploited, used for His own advantage. 
manipulated. Isn't that right? I mean, just right there, we'll go on and we'll see even more contrast. But right there, don't you see the stark, unimaginable contrast between what we humanly, naturally want and seek and what we see all around us? Don't you see that? He did not consider that as something to be exploited. Verse 7, instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant. And literally in the Greek, that's doulos. That means slave. Not just servant, like you think of, you know, at, at uh, fancy formal dinners, you know, much like what we'll have today, you know. It's not the idea of, of someone coming around, refilling your drinks. It's not like someone who has household servants that wait on them and tend to them. That's not the idea. The idea is an absolute, complete slave, void of any natural rights. A slave, property. So instead, the one who existed for all of eternity in the divine Godhead, fully God, equal with the Father, he did not consider that as something to be exploited, used to his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of humanity. Notice that does not mean he ceased to be God. He didn't stop being God. What it means is, he added to his divinity our humanity. Who would do that? Who would do that? No one. No one. No one who had perfect majesty, perfect glory, perfect power, perfect wisdom would say, I'm going to add on to myself. I'm going to add on to the perfection that I have now. I'm going to add limited humanity. I'm going to add weakness. I'm going to add the ability to get sick. I'm going to add the ability to have hunger. I'm going to add to myself the ability to get fatigued. I'm going to add to myself the ability to be wounded. Would you do that? If you had total perfection and you were absent of all the limitations of humanity that we all know, would you add that willingly on? Of course not. Of course not. But that's what he did. He took on the likeness of humanity. 2 Corinthians 8-9, Paul says, Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. This is one of many significant truths that separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. And from business as usual in every human system of power or politics. That truth, that reality, everything we're seeing right here, that's what distinguishes us as Christians and the truth that we hold and the realities of Jesus and the realities of the gospel. That's what separates it from everything else. No other religion shows us that. No other human system of government or or politics, or business does that, incorporates that as the model. It's unique to Jesus, and therefore it's unique to Christianity. Continuing with verse 7, 
we finish by looking at the phrase that he took on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, we're getting ready to celebrate that in just a couple weeks. When he had come as a man, verse 8, he humbled himself. He didn't come wearing the crown that had been his for all of eternity. He didn't come with the crown on his head. He laid aside the crown and he took on the mantle of humility. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Mark 10.45 says, Even the Son of Man, Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Aren't you thankful for that this morning? Aren't you thankful that He was willing to do that, to lay aside His crown for the purpose of taking on a cross all for you? This remarkable example, this remarkable truth of our Savior, our King, willing to do that for us. The King of Heaven being willing to leave heaven and leave His crown and His throne there to come as a man, not insisting on the worship and majesty that was rightfully His, that He could have insisted on. Rather, that He came for one purpose and one only. To serve, to be obedient to His Father's plan of redemption, which culminated in the cross. All of this tells us a couple of very, very important things. I don't want you to miss this. First, only the upside-down kingdom of Jesus can turn things right-side up in our world. Only the upside-down kingdom of Jesus can turn things right-side up in our world. We all know our world is upside down in every way. It's, it is a mess, right? I mean, I don't have to convince you of that. It's a total mess. Totally flipped upside down. And what we see in Jesus' approach, what we see in His kingship, and what we see in His kingdom, is a total upside down way of doing it. We don't see that in history. We don't see that in other religions. We don't see that in politics. We don't see that in business. It's upside down from the way things normally function in our way of of looking at things. But the fact that it's upside down is exactly what we need because that's the only thing that can turn us right side up. The other thing that I want to make sure that you don't miss, what all of this teaches us and tells us, is that in the culture of the kingdom, and if you're part of Christ, you're part of His kingdom, which means you're to live in light of that kingdom. You and I are to live as citizens of the kingdom of our King and Savior above and beyond the way we're to live as citizens of this world. And so in the culture of the kingdom, we're called to have an other's first focus, which is totally contrary to the default mode of operating, humanly speaking. Humanly, our default is me first. It's all about me. But we're called in the culture of the kingdom to be countercultural to the culture of this world and to have an other's first focus, which was modeled first 
and perfectly by our Savior. Romans 12.10 says this, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. We have a tendency as human beings, especially in our current culture, to try to outdo one another in a variety of different ways. It's all about getting ahead of someone else. Even if you have to step on them to reach that next level. So outdoing one another, that concept in itself is something we're familiar with and we're told to pursue. Yeah, get ahead. Pass each other up. One up each other. But what Paul instructs in this passage and what we see modeled in our Savior again is that we are to outdo one another in showing honor. So I go out of my way to show you honor, to look out for you first, to elevate you above myself. I go out of my way to do that. I pursue an others first focus. You then me, you then me, and then then you do the same. And the, the healthy and holy competition in that is we see who can show honor to each other more. Isn't that just a, a fun way of looking at that? And that's really what Paul is saying. Paul apparently loved competition. He loved sports. He used sports metaphors all the time. He used competition all the time in his writing. And here he's saying, here, I, I've got a competition for you. Try to outdo one another in showing honor to one another. Try to outdo one another in putting each other first. I think that's a noble competition worthy of pursuing. What would our churches look like? What would our families look like? What would our businesses look like? What would our government systems look like if we all decided, I'm going to try my best to outdo my fellow human being in showing them honor. If they're showing me a little bit of honor, I'm going to go farther and show them even more. They're putting me first in this. I'm going to put them first even more. Imagine if we all reciprocated that together. Wow. That's what we're called to, Christian. That's what we're called to in the kingdom of our Savior. And you look at this, you look at all of this instruction, you hear everything that I've been saying, and the natural thought might be, Okay, I hear that, I receive that, I know that's true, I intellectually accept that, but I mean, come on, we're talking about Jesus here. Jesus is the one who did all that. Jesus is the one that modeled that, that pictured that. Yeah, He might have taken on humanity, but He was still perfect God. Isn't that impossible for us? And I I get that. Like, if that's your thought, if you're thinking that way, that resonates with me. I I totally understand that. Naturally speaking, yeah, that's impossible for us. And yet it's still possible. It's still possible to live this way, to act in this way, to apply these truths. And the reason I know is because Scripture gave us a beautiful, powerful, absolutely real picture of this in action. Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 35. And I'm going to have you look at that with me, and we'll be wrapping up. Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 35. This is a picture of human beings like you and me, people with a nature like ours. Don't think, well, this was, you know, at the first century and people were better then. No, not at all. People have always been people. People are people no matter where you go, 
And people are people no matter where you look at on the timeline of history. Fallen people are fallen people, sinful people. This group of people that we're going to look at, the early church, the first century, they were human beings just like you and me with that fallen nature prone to pursue their own agenda rather than looking out for others first. They struggled with that just like you and me. And yet, look what they were able to do. Look how they were able to be. Acts 4, verses 32 through 35. Now the entire group of those who believed, this was right after the start of the church, were of one heart and mind. And no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. But instead, they held everything in common. What's mine is yours, was the philosophy. You, then me. They held everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. The reason why they were able to give such testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, the reason why it was so readily received, the reason there was such great grace on all of them, the reason for all of that, was because of what we saw just previous to that. That everybody was united in one heart, one mind. No one claimed, no one held tightly to his possessions. No one said, it's all about me. Instead, they held everything in common. You see that connection there? That's why we see that next part. Then let's continue. For there was not a needy person among them because all those who owned lands or houses sold them brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. Wow, right? What a picture. And that's a picture of what Paul is writing about and instructing in Philippians chapter 2. That's a picture of what we're all called to do. That's a picture of considering one another higher, better, first. Of you than me, not it's all about me. And this was not necessarily prescriptive. I'm not saying that that this is what we, down to that detail, what we're, we're all commanded to do. Like you should run home and put your house up for sale and and come and bring the money to the church so we can give it to everybody who has need. I'm not saying we all move into one great big compound together. I'm not saying this is necessarily prescriptive. It's not prescriptive for all of us down to this detail. However, and don't miss this, it is absolutely to be descriptive. Descriptive of all of us. So in other words, that should still be our mindset. That should be our attitude. That should be our heart. And that should be what we pursue. And if... God should lead in a physical, monetary type way to do something like this. We should be all about it. We should be all for it, ready to do it. If God lays on on our hearts at any point, you need to give up what you have physically for the sake of someone else. Then we we should find that in a way actually easy and it should be a source of joy because we're already living with that mindset. You see what I mean? So if, if it comes down to a physical expression of that, like it did here in the early church, as we just read in Acts 4, 
that should be no real hard thing for us because as citizens of the kingdom, we're already living in that posture. That's how it should be. And none of this is possible without the power of the indwelling Spirit of God. The early church could not have done any of that on their own, by their strength. They didn't have it in them. And neither do you, neither neither do I. That has to be something that the Holy Spirit directs and supplies and provides, and then we apply it. The Holy Spirit supplies the power, we apply that power. That's how it works. With that being said, I want to just have everybody bow your heads, and I want to give a moment just to think, and I want to just give some space for the Holy Spirit to direct you on how you personally should apply what we've, we've talked about together. And then um, Pastor Matthew is going to come and he'll pray and we'll continue fellowshipping together, okay? Give a moment. Let the Spirit speak. Lord, the way that you have called us to walk. As my brother has just said, it is just entirely foreign to us in our have it your way, look out for number one mentality. And yes, Lord, this erroneous way is just steeped deep in our culture, but it is in our culture because we confess it is in us. And so, Lord, as we have gathered this morning to receive your word together, we ask your forgiveness for so often easily blaming our culture for the sin that is deep in our own hearts. And we ask that you would, through this very special service today, through your word and through, yes, our time of fellowship together, that you would teach us how to walk in your way. That you would teach us how to honor one another, how to consider one another, how to live lives of sacrifice for one another. Because you are holy. And this is the example you have given. These things we pray together for your glory. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.